You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends, and welcome. I'm glad you're here. This week, I'm joined by Sheila Brown. And let this be your trigger warning. We do talk about issues of race and politics and how a young black man should handle an encounter with police, even if he believes he's done nothing wrong. I ask what Sheila thinks about Candace Owens. I also ask fun questions like who is a better comedian, Dave Chappelle or Richard Pryor? What Sheila has been able to do in this life is truly inspiring. She has been around the world and ayaya, as I have. So I thought it'd be interesting to have a discussion about what we've learned in our travels, especially in places like Australia. And I was curious how much it cost for Sheila to live in different places, especially where she lives now, which is the Riviera Maya part of Mexico. That'll help you beautiful listeners who may be thinking about throwing a deuce to your boss on that next Zoom call. (laughs) Oh, and of course, we talk about personal finance. Sheila is such an interesting guest. She gave up a high-powered career in the States. She said she she used to be very materialistic, called herself a spend-it-spend-it girl, paid as much as $7,000 for a purse more than once. Now she's more frugal yet still living what most would consider to be a luxurious lifestyle. She lives the sort of life that many people dream about, and it can be had at a low cost in Mexico. And since she admittedly wasn't a responsible saver and investor when she had a great job in the U.S., she now supports herself entirely with money she makes online while seeing the world, and she coaches others to do it too. Lastly, before I bring her on, I want the key takeaway from this conversation to be the importance of having conversations like this with people who may think differently than you. If we disagree, so what? They're just opinions. You can't let opinions get tied up in your personhood. If you're someone who ended a friendship because of someone's opinion, that doesn't make you righteous. And although you think you may be intellectual and more compassionate, more caring, more tolerant, more whatever than them, if you ended a friendship because someone has a different opinion than you, you're a loser. And being a loser supersedes all those other qualities you may think that you have. But you probably don't have those qualities. And if you were a little more self-aware, you'd know that. Don't lose friends over differences of opinion. Gain friends with differences of opinion. It'll enrich your life and make you more informed, more open-minded. We need to find more meaning in relationships than we do in politics. How's that for a bumper sticker? Find more meaning in relationships than you do in politics. That said, I gained a lifelong friend in Sheila. I liked her from Hello, and I think you will too. So please enjoy my conversation with Miss Sheila Brown. Sheila, welcome to the Man Overseas Mobile Studio. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here, Brad. Thank you so much for inviting me. Race is a hot topic in America right now. Mm -hmm. I noticed yesterday that you said several times as an African-American woman, Mm -hmm. 
So you prefaced your statement with that. So I imagine it's it's very important to you. Mm-hmm. And you're probably very in tune to what's happening in America right now. Very much so. As an African-American coach, is there a way that you've coached other African-Americans to decipher whether someone is being racist toward them or just being an asshole? Well, as an African-American person, you know right off the bat if someone's racist or being an asshole. It's it's just an obvious thing. Like, you you know inherently because we've had it happen for, you know, since out of the womb. So you definitely know. Top seven countries you've ever visited off the top of your head? Australia, Thailand, France, because I love Paris, the DR, Mexico, for sure, Italy, and Spain. And those countries are all based on, like, how fine the dudes are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since we talked about being an African-American, are you attracted more to... Well, you wouldn't call them African-Americans, a darker skin tone. So the men that I date typically are blonde hair, blue eyes. (laughs) Yeah, that's been my whole thing since like second grade. Yeah. But I mean, I love I love all men. Lord knows. Yeah, I typically date like I always knew that when I got married, I was going to be like Sheila Bernstein, Sheila (laughs) Goldstein or whatever. It was always kind of a joke. So, yeah. That's so interesting to Mm -hmm. me. You ever dated a black guy? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love I love all men. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I typically because and that's really because of the circles that I'm in. You know, I went to like all white schools growing up, but also too in this internet space and professionally in corporate America where where you meet people, where you meet partners typically, I'm I'm always and I mean always the only black person in the room, the only black woman in the room, like my whole life it's been that way. So all the countries that you mentioned, mm-hmm. the seven countries. Is any of them less racist than America? Oh, honey, the the entire planet is less racist than America. It's why I travel. It's why I and we, that are my fellow black expats here, have left. Uh, it's why I knew that I had to leave even before I knew it was a concept to be able to leave. I knew that I had to leave. I knew that I had to leave my hometown of Kansas City, Missouri, because, oh, my God. Um, So when I graduated college, the first thing I did was get the hell out of there. So I moved to I got recruited by Gateway. And so I got sent out to San Diego. So once I got to California, it was like, oh, my God. So that's why I love California so much, because in my experience, I I experienced zero racism living in California and in Beverly Hills, too, because the only color that matters out there is green. As long as you have money, is you're you're good. And so I always had money, so it was fine. And I'm okay with that. Like make an equalizer based on something that can be achieved. So if it's, you know, I just judge you on your money, not to say that's a good thing, but <laughs> whatever. But you know, I'm fine with that. But if you're judging me based on the color of my skin, I'm like, dude, like whatever, that's your issue, that's your problem. So and when I was in LA, it was really funny. I literally forgot racism even existed. But it was only when I would get on the plane once every year to go home to Kansas City to see my mom, I would be going down the jetway at LAX, and then I'm la la la, my normal Sheila self. And then the minute I hit the doors and I turn, I see the people, I see all these eyes glaring at me, and I'm the only black face. And it's like, oh my God. And it was like, and it would hit me like a wave. I was like, oh fuck, I forgot shit. I forgot, I forgot that it was an issue for people mm. that I was black. I'll never forget that I'm black, but I forgot that 
oh, this is a thing. Like, mm. you have a thing. Wow, I pity you. Japan would be less racist than America? Never been to Japan. Never mm. been. The only Asian countries I've been to, so Thailand was dope. I've never had an incident. Like, literally, I've never had a, a, a blatant incident. I had an incident in Italy, though, in which my perception was that it was racist at the time. But as I've thought about it over the years, I question, was it a situational thing? Was it me not understanding culture? Was it me not understanding language? So it could have been my filters as well. Mm. And speaking on that just a little bit more, when I went to Australia, <clears throat> it's my favorite place in the world because when I traveled there, that was the first place I ever went to in which I actually, I don't want to say forget that I was black, but I, me being black wasn't the first thing that walked into the room. They viewed me at first as an American and then a woman and then a beautiful woman. And then it stopped there. It never was oh, she's black. Oh, it's a woman. Because in America and in the rest of the world, the thing that walks in the door first that everybody sees and the whole filter is color. And then I also realized, so I was able to walk around as a woman. And I've never had that luxury as a black woman navigating this world just to navigate the world as a woman. And it was the most freeing thing, but it also made me realize that how indoctrinated my mind is with my first filter as race. And I was like, holy shit. And so when I got back home, I made it a point to try to like crush that filter. But of course you can't. And, and you go back into that space or whatever. But that was the first place where I was free to navigate and just be Sheila. That was it. Mexico, less racist than America? Mexico's not racist at all. Mexico, people here, I love Mexico. Because people don't, they don't care. Mexicans are cool. Everybody's cool. Like, mm-mm. They don't try to rip you off here? Uh, no, not Do you so. count your change? I do, but, <laughs> I mean, it's so cheap here that if somebody's trying to rip me off, I'm like, yo, people are trying to eat. Like, I understand my immense levels of privilege I have here. And so, I'm, I, like, I will, I guess I got ripped off the other day because I took the taxi home from Walmart and they charged me 100 pesos versus 30. You know what? People here need to eat. I, what is what is 100 pesos five dollars is like whatever so. a lot of times what they'll do is you will negotiate a price like to go to the airport for 35 dollars mm -hmm. and then you get to the airport and they'll tell you 50 dollars and you say well no i said we agreed to 35 dollars and they will they sometimes feel entitled to what you have because you have it and they don't so i don't like the dishonesty sometimes mm -hmm. i i find that here more more so than anywhere else in the world Riviera Maya area, you get ripped off more than anywhere. Interesting. But it's just my perception. But I started counting my change too. So I see it every single day. Yeah. So the way that I circumvent that situation that you gave as an example is, and this is one of those tips for traveling as a single woman also too. When I land in a, in a country, I always pay to have a driver with a sign with my name on it. So it's already paid for. I already know what it is. And going to the airport here, we, we have a driver that we call. So we already knew we we're going to pay. So I don't get into that whole haggling, things like that, because you can, whether whatever country you're in, a taxi driver is going to rip you off. It's, it's like a non-negotiable kind of a thing. And so I'm like, OK, well, what do I do to avoid that? Well, I always I have drivers. So and, and I think it's a safe thing, too, as a woman with a safety piece. You know, I don't ever want to get into a cab 
in a country and they have this scam where they're, you know, doing whatever, whatever. And so as a safety piece, again, that's a one of those common sense decisions I talked about earlier. I don't even allow that to even happen. And so I don't get ripped off and, and I stay safe too. Since we're both fans of Tim Ferriss, I should say that he also has drivers in foreign countries. One time he gave them a fake name, a pseudonym, and somebody was waiting at the airport with his name on their sign. And so you have to be very careful in foreign countries, mm-hmm. especially with as accessible as if you Googled Brad D'Antonio, you will find out that I am, quote unquote, financially independent. So I have to be very careful when I travel. So just warning anyone who is considering it, it doesn't take anything for somebody in Indonesia to quickly Google your name and find out that you're an American and that sort of thing can happen. The last thing you want to do is get caught in a taxi going somewhere you're not aware of. So I just, never would have thought about that. I'm really glad you said that. That's an amazing, I hope you guys got that because that's a huge point. That's a big deal. So you and I were talking about how my audience is predominantly male. Mm-hmm. Most podcast audiences are predominantly male. Mm-hmm. What should a young black man do if he account encounters a police officer in America, especially if he's if he thinks that he's done nothing wrong, how would you advise him to react? I don't know that I'm the best person to advise that because I'm I'm not an African American man and I haven't experienced that, but just from what I have seen and heard people talk about or whatnot. In in this in and you know it's it's unfortunate that we even have to do things differently. Um Remain calm, obviously, you know, keep your hands on the steering wheel at what, 10 and 2. One of the things that I was living in Dallas for the past two years with my best friend because I had to get off the road to kind of calibrate. And she has my niece who is, well, she's like 21 now. But when Milan was in school, we had to teach Milan to not carry a black wallet because it could be looked at as a gun. And so we bought pink wallets. How insane is that? How fucking insane is that? That's so interesting. I would have thought of that because when I played baseball, I always found it to be easier to hit off of a black picture because of the white ball in his hand. Mm -hmm. So that's something I would have thought of. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And so you never want to give a cop a reason to suspect anything, which, again, is insane. Having your driving with your wallet literally in the seat next to you or like in the console next to you so that you can say, Hey, officer, my wallet is right there in the console. You can see it. And you have to, they have to communicate everything that they're doing as far as like, I'm moving my hand. And I'm, I'm saying this from like what I would do, because I just lived in the States for two years after being abroad forever. And I know I was terrified, terrified to go back because I didn't know what I was going to expect. So these are things that I was doing if I would have been stopped too. So it would apply to answer your question. Um, so communicating, you know, what it is you're doing not doing any sudden moves and just, you know, answering the questions. Do you think that most people in America have considered the possibility that George Floyd's killing wasn't racially motivated? Not you, but most people. Do you think they've considered that? As in most non-black people? Well, just people in general. Do you think most people have considered that it may not be racially motivated? Um, 
I, I think there's there's a huge contingent again as I'm outside in Mexico reading everything and talking to my friends. There's a huge contingent out there that believes that well he had to been doing something wrong, so it was justified because he you know he da da da. So there there had to been a reason. So sure, yeah, there's a huge contingent I, I think that may think that it's not racially motivated. If the West were to fall, mm-hmm. do you think the values of openness and tolerance? and democracy would replace what we have now? Or do you think it's more likely to be authoritarianism and intolerance? I would think it would be the former. I would think it would be more inclusion and tolerance because we're seeing that right now. You know, I'm seeing stories of people that were died in the wool, KKK, like, and they're now saying, okay, wait a minute. This is actually kind of fucked up. Because, and I think because too, you know, we're all at home, we're all consuming social media, we're all getting all this information and people's minds are changing. And as I'm looking at pictures of, of the, the marches and things like there was this one that happened in Seattle on Saturday, 60,000 people did a silent protest in Seattle on Saturday. I don't think the American press really picked up on that. And as I looked at the crowd, I only saw white people. I didn't see black people. And I was like, this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. And I think one of the things that we're discovering, and, and my, my black friends debate this, but I've said this from day one, a lot of white people are waking up and my black friends are saying, well, how do they not know? How do you not know? If you don't know, then you're a racist. And I'm like, no, that's not the case. Our worlds are so different that it's just really a matter of, dude, I really fucking didn't know. And now that they're getting this information, they're realizing this is wrong. And more and more people are seeing that and we can't go back to injustice or the authoritarian path that I think we were being led on under the current administration, not to get political, but um, yeah. Are there any conservative or Republican positions that you agree with or would support? You know, my own view and stature is actually very conservative in nature. I, my own Views and opinions, really, I mean, if, if you had to, you know, lay them down on a piece of paper, you know, comparing apples to oranges, black and white, I skewed more conservative because um, it's just kind of the way that I think. So the, the Republicans are typically around, you know, money, the stock market and whatnot. And so the laws that they want to put in place really protect us that have a higher income, those of us that own real estate, those of us that own businesses and things like that. And so from a person that is now grown that has, I don't want to say wealth to manage or what have you, but definitely has real specific goals around that. Yeah, my my views and, and my allegiance is more conservative leaning from that standpoint. But from the standpoint of removing ecological protections and people's protections of who they are and, and things of that nature, I'm, I'm actually against it. So from, from the financial money standpoint, you know, when Trump got into office and I saw the things he did with the tax reform and all that stuff, I'm like, mm, OK, I'm, I'm seeing that. I'm feeling that because it makes sense because I'm a person that benefits from that. But if I wasn't a person that benefited from that, I, I might feel differently, to be mm. honest about it. If I told you that 19 of the 20 richest counties in America were Republican, that would make sense, right? 19 of the top 20 richest counties. Of course. They're not. They're Democrat. Really? Well, think about it. L.A., New York City, D.C., Chicago. Yeah, they all vote Democrat. 
Interesting. Who would be a better late night host? You or Jimmy Fallon? I think me because my style is I very much, I keep it real. And one of the things I love to do is when I get information from the extremely privileged secret circles that I'm able to be a part of, one of my things is I like to take that information and disseminate it to people that don't really have it. I call it like spilling the tea. And so I would be that spill the tea host that would tell the regular normal people that be watching me. It's like, okay, I know when I watch Sheila, I'm getting all the tea. I'm getting things that people want to keep from me. So I, I think from a, from a well-rounded you know, situation, I would have to say me. <laughs> I agree. And that's why I asked. Have you ever heard of Thomas Sowell? No, I haven't. Uh, one word to describe Candace Owens. I, I borderline want to refrain from that. Yeah. But? <laughs> um, I don't want to ever say anything disparaging about another black woman, regardless of how I feel about her. So for for respect of, of another woman being a black woman, whether she identifies as that or not, I'm going to refrain. <laughs> she also likes white dudes. Did you know of her before the viral video that had something like 60 million views? Mm, I've, I've, I've known of her for sure. She was on Joe Rogan's podcast and he found her to be very intelligent, but said that because she didn't, quote, believe in, ch in climate change, that, sh that made her unintelligent. Would you agree if someone thinks the whole climate change thing is a hoax, that they're probably less intelligent than your average human? You know, I, I, I refrain from using the word less intelligent because that puts me in a space of judging someone. Just because a person has a, a differing view of me or anybody else, that doesn't necessarily make them less intelligent anymore than it makes me more intelligent. It just believes that's something that they believe in and that's fine. You could say, you know, a person that a flat earther, as an example, you know, it's like, dude, what the fuck? Like, how the fuck do you think that? But if that's what they believe, you know, bless their little hearts. But because I believe that the earth is round, that doesn't make me any more intelligent or less intelligent. So I don't, I don't like to use those terms. I'm with you. Even if I think someone is lacking in intelligence, I don't like hearing someone call somebody else stupid. Yeah, no. You hear that a lot about conservative politicians like Sarah Palin. Like if somebody walked in here and and said Sarah Palin is so stupid, it would turn me off regardless of whether she's lacking in intelligence. Let me tell you something. Sarah Palin is far from stupid. That chica, if you look at, she was a, a freaking, was she the governor of Alaska when she, when he picked her or whatever, she was a governor of Podunk, Alaska. And look at what she parlayed that into the way that she has positioned herself and her family to continue to get checks. Her baby's having illegitimate kids and all that stuff and getting reality shows. Everybody's getting a check. You cannot be an unintelligent person and come out here and set up your whole family for, for money and, and notoriety and be a dumb person. And just, and just like you, because I disagree with someone, like I could easily say, well, someone that's a racist is stupid. Well, I, I do believe that racism is based on ignorance. But is a racist person an ignorant person? Hell no. I know many PhDs that are racist as fuck. They're highly intelligent. People in Mensa, highly intelligent, could be racist. That I mean, supported the Nazis. Hitler was fucking brilliant. If you, yeah. if you, because when Trump was getting elected, whatever, I had to go back and I had to study 
Okay. Because my question on my head always was, how the fuck did that happen? Did nobody say, bruh, what, what are we doing here? So I had to really look at what did Hitler do from, from Ruta when he was a nobody to build what he built? And when I studied it, the psychology that he uses, oh my God, everyone should study it. The, the layers of brilliance that that man exhibited, sheer brilliance. It's so interesting you say that because I believe that you are brilliant for being able to see that angle, whereas most people cannot. Mm -hmm. I think their emotions overwhelm their intellect mm -hmm. and therefore wouldn't even be able to consider what you just said. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. In his own way, he was brilliant. And everyone should read Mein Kampf if they get a chance. Yep, I agree. I also believe that statues should not come down in the same way that Auschwitz shouldn't come down. I've tried to visit every World War II monument or historical venue that I possibly can. And I've been to many concentration camps. There's a reason that they stayed there. We don't know what 200 years from now we're doing now that's going to be frowned upon. It could be eating meat. Mm -hmm. You never know. You mean you slaughtered animals so that you could eat them? It could be plants. Oh, my God. You ate beautiful plants, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Just because you disagree with history does not mean that you need to erase it. And when the statues were coming down, my thought was, yeah, it should come down. These races, mofos, whatever. But there's a man that I follow whose name is Simon Black, a sovereign man. So one of the things he said is that, you know, it's a pity that, that the masses are controlling this eraser of erasure of nature of uh, history. And I was like, you know, you're right. And to your point with the concentration camps, I went to Dachau when I was in Germany. What if they tore it down because such, such atrocities happened there? No, we need to keep that stuff up because it's, it's, a, it's a physical lesson of what not to do. The thing I don't agree with, I don't agree these people should have been celebrated with monuments in the first damn place. But, it, but is the answer to tear down the monuments? I don't, I don't really know. You come across as a very passionate person. What would you say is your biggest passion in life? Oh, gosh. My biggest passion in life is helping people to fund their lives abroad or if they want to travel and be a digital nomad to figure out ways to actually pay for that lifestyle because it's a great lifestyle. So you're living that lifestyle now? <laughs> very much so. And I've lived it for several years going on. 10, almost 10 at this particular point. And you were living where before? Before, I lived in Beverly Hills for 15 years. And I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. That's where I was born. But Beverly Hills is really where I say that I'm from because that's where my formative life happened. Interesting. What job were you working before you decided to travel? I was a recruiter for 20 years for some of the biggest companies in the world. I started out with Pepsi-Cola and then Gateway Computers hired me, stole me away. And then the Walt Disney Company came calling and I recruited for their studios and then Activision called and I built out their recruiting division and then I became a consultant and I created a consulting business in which I hired executives and C-level executives for movie studios and entertainment companies in Hollywood. So I did all that for 20 years. So did you have enough money saved up that you decided, you know what, I'm just going to travel the world? <laughs> I wish that would be assuming that I wasn't a, a spend it, spend it girl. So no, not at all. I uh, was living in Beverly Hills, lived a huge Beverly Hills life, made a lot of money, of course. But 
you know, being there, I had a lifestyle to maintain. A Gucci lifestyle is what I call it. If I made a dollar, I'd spend a dollar. I was just kind of raised that way. My mom never taught me about, or my parents or whatever, never taught me about saving or things like that. So no, I definitely was not that person that, oh, I had 50,000 in the bank so I could travel. No, everything that I've done, I've had to literally start from zero and and make all the mistakes and figure it all out. <laughs> wow. Where did you start? I started, I went to Australia in 2009. So a little bit of a backstory. I was living this amazing life in Hollywood and Beverly Hills, and I had everything that I ever wanted. But then I looked up and I wasn't happy. It was like, gosh, you know, like I've got all these things and, and I should be happy, but I'm, I wasn't unhappy, but I just felt like something was missing. And so I thought about traveling. I found out about making money online. And I just had this huge desire and passion to travel around the world, live like a queen and for like very low dollars or whatever, I make money online to support that because I got that from reading the four-hour work week. Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, exactly. So the first place I went was Australia. So I had an idea, a kind of a premonition that kind of dropped in my head to sell all my things, get rid of my life in Beverly Hills, which was crazy, and move to Australia. The idea got popped in my head in October. So from October until March of the following year, March of 2009, is when I did it, and I left, and I went to Australia. <laughs> so you left right at the height of the recession. Well, we didn't, of course, know there was a recession at the time. Like, what's a recession, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's pretty funny. Yes, I, I did, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so you started working online in Australia right away? Well, my idea and my plan was to, because I had been studying internet marketing for about two years before that, and I was making money online a little bit. I wasn't doing a lot because I was still trying to figure things out. So I figured I'd go to Australia and um, just figure it out as I was over there. Because the one thing that called me to Australia, besides it being on my vision board, there was a conference I read about online called the World Internet Summit. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I have to go to that. It was in the Gold Coast in Brisbane. So and I, my plan was to I was going to go there. I was going to learn all this information. And then I was going to digital nomad around Australia. And I was going to implement everything and build this big Internet business. That was the plan. <laughs> I can laugh about this now. So I sold all my stuff. And so when you sell your, like the things that I owned, I owned probably about $200,000 worth of stuff, including my cars and all that stuff. By the time it was all sold, I maybe had like 18 grand. Maybe, right? Because, you know, when you spend $3,000 for a Gucci bag, you go to sell it, it doesn't sell for three grand. And I had hundreds of those things. So at the time, the exchange rate in Australia was in our favor. So I'm like, okay, cool. I'll make money over there because my money will go further. But what I didn't know, because I didn't research this, was that Australia is ungodly expensive. Like an order of chips, which are actually French fries, a chips and a, and a Coke, is like $11. <laughs> so I just hadn't planned for that. Also, too, the thing that I hadn't budgeted for was I was in LA. My whole wardrobe was sundresses because it's sunny there all the time. And so I'm going in March. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, it'll be going into spring. It'll be warm. I'll take all my summer clothes. No big deal. Well, no one told me Australia is in the Southern Hemisphere. So, and I never knew what that was. So March is going into their winter. Okay. So I had to suddenly buy boots coats, all these things in this expensive place. So my money was like, I'm going by really, really fast. So long story short, I go to the World Internet Summit. I learn a lot of stuff, meet a lot of people. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to go to Sydney. I'm going to implement all these things and get going. So I finally make my way to Sydney, Australia, where I was going to hang out for a few months. 
And the one thing I didn't know about Australia also is that they don't have unlimited internet. And so you couldn't just go to like McDonald's and get Wi-Fi or Starbucks or anything like that. And you couldn't get a package where it was like, yeah, unlimited for 50 bucks a month. They sold their internet by the gig. So in order for me to get internet, I had to buy a dongle and spend hundreds of dollars a month for really shitty internet. My money wasn't coming in from the internet like I really wanted it to. So things just kind of went awry. And in five months time, I went broke. <laughs> so I lived everyone's nightmare. There are a lot of Australians that travel in Bali because that is an appealing place. Mm -hmm. Did you consider going to Bali? I didn't even know about Bali at the time. This was 2009. This was before, like now everyone does this. Everyone goes this place. But at that time, you guys have to understand there were barely blogs back then. The blog thing back then, the platform was blogger. There wasn't WordPress. This was like in the stone age. I was a, a pioneering mama back then. So we didn't have the tools that we have now. So there wasn't a, oh, go to Thailand or go to Bali because all those things came about well after Tim's book and well after this thing came about. So I didn't know to, I just didn't know. I just knew Australia and like, okay. So what happens next? And so I'm broke. I'm literally broke. I have, I'm down to like, oh gosh, I don't know, maybe like a hundred bucks. So I call home to my mom and I'm, I'm like in my forties. I'm like grown at this particular time. Right. And I'm like, Hey mom, <laughs> uh, I'm over here in Australia. I'm broke. Can you call my dad and see if he can send me some money? And she's like, what girl? So she cusses me out, and, uh, but she calls and so my dad ends up wiring me like $2,000. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'm good. I'm set. Well, the thing I hadn't counted on <laughs> is that my account, my checking account was overdrawn by like $700. So he's wires me this money. I'm all of a sudden minus $1,300 left. So I was like, oh my God, holy shit. So I'm in Melbourne, Australia. I'm staying in these cheap hostels. And so I make it back to Sydney and I've got like a thousand dollars left. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Because I didn't want to go home. My plan was to get citizenship over there. I was going to get citizenship and stay, but I was too old at the time. So I couldn't do it. So I'm like, I got to get back home. So one night I'm in this like $10 a night hostel and um, an ex-boyfriend of mine hits me up on Facebook. He's like, hey, how are you doing? She like just kind of randomly. And normally I would have told him, oh, I'm great. But spirit was like, no, you need to tell him like what's going on. I'm like, well, I'm not really doing well. And he says, well, what's going on? And so I told him and he said, well, what do you need? And so I told him, I just need to get back home. So next thing I know, I'm on a, he got me a first class ticket home. So I'm on a first class flight back to L.A., I stay with him for a little bit and we go on this adventure, travel adventure around the United States for a little bit, but I ended up moving to Austin, Texas because I gave up my, remember I gave up my home in LA. I gave up everything. So I had no home. I had no car. I had nothing. And I had to start over again. So my mother bought me a car and I moved to Austin, Texas because at that time that was kind of like a base for internet marketing. A lot of people had started moving there. A lot of people that I really respected. So I moved to Austin in August of 2009 to start the internet business and to start my life over again. Ironically, that's where Tim Ferriss moved. Did he really? Yeah, he just moved to that. Austin from Silicon Valley. A lot of people are getting tired of the snootiness and pretentiousness of San Francisco and the yeah. Bay Area. So yeah, he just moved to Austin. So it's funny to hear you say that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's going on lately? Where are you living now? And what does your future look like? So now I live in um, Playa del Carmen, Mexico. I've been here since November. So when I moved to Austin, I figured things out or what have you. And I built this life in which I'm able to make 
quite a bit of money online. And I was able to actually reach my goal that Tim Ferriss talked about in the book of the concept. I have lived in the Dominican Republic like four different times over four years, lived in Thailand, lived, like I said, in Australia. Now I live in Mexico and have a great place here. I have a thriving coaching business. I have lots of online courses. I've created what I call a, a chillpreneur life. I don't like working hard. I've worked in the workplace for 20 years and gave my pound of flesh. And so I'm all about that chill internet lifestyle. And that's what I have. So I work when I want to, but my incomes, my portable incomes all end up coming in and, and working for me. So I don't have to really work that hard. How much do you spend per month to live in Playa del Carmen, Mexico, roughly? Great question. So Playa del Carmen is, is known as kind of a, a more pricier digital nomad spot. And, and we live well, like we're grown. So we live in, in a basically a five-star kind of a condo hotel. So it's very luxury. We have a concierge, the pools and all that stuff. So our rent here is 27,000 pesos, which is about 1200 bucks a month, which is high for here. It is very high for here, but we're in the middle of town. We're in a great area. You know, you could live here for as little as, I don't know, 500 bucks a month if you wanted to, but we have a, a grown-up lifestyle. So rent, I have a roommate, so we share a place. Rent is $600 a month. We eat out, but food here is really cheap. And I cook or we cook our own meals and stuff. So maybe food and entertainment. My God, if it was $300 a month, I'd, I'd be really shocked. You know, I don't shop anymore. So I don't have that whole addiction anymore. So, I mean, all told, we live or I live really, really well for two grand. At the, and that's a stretch. That sounds about right. When we're here, we stay for 30 days at a time and we spend roughly two grand, maybe sometimes 2500 2700 what do you do about health insurance? That's a good question. So I used to do World Nomads. I had the traveler's insurance, but um, I got sick in the DR and I had a claim and it didn't really get paid out or whatever. So really, I don't have insurance right now. And that's kind of a tough thing because I've been home free in the United States. I haven't had a home there for 10 years now. So I don't have health coverage in the States, but I'm actually about to get a policy. So my roommate just got a policy that covers you and it's through... United Healthcare. So it will cover you here abroad with everything, even with COVID. That was a thing too with Corona. If you get that, a lot of policies, even if I had one, they wouldn't have covered me. So she's got coverage here. It actually covers in the States because most travel insurance, they will not cover in the States at all. So if you go home and you get sick, you're still kind of ass out if that happens. So I'm actually about to get hers and she pays, I think it's $700 every quarter. And so I'm literally going to be getting it when I when we get back from our vacation this weekend. Okay, so that's a little over 200 a month. Yeah, but I literally I've been traveling all these years without insurance because the places I've been living to, I choose places that have excellent health care. And so if something happens, you just pay out of pocket. And I've been very blessed. I'm knock knock on my head, knock wood. To if I've gotten sick, I just pay, and it's like you know whatever. Yeah, I've paid for most of my stuff out of pocket and had an emergency or a catastrophic plan, like if I were to get cancer or something. That's interesting. So when you talked about living a luxurious lifestyle here, are you talking about the building we're sitting in now? Yeah, the building per se. Okay. Um, there are lots of other places you could live here, lots of other buildings and areas. Like a lot of people, they'll move here and they'll move what we say across the highway, which is in the locals area. Nothing wrong with that. That's totally cool. But they're like, oh, I pay 200 bucks a month. That's great. That's not my thing. Okay, so the highway you're talking about runs from Cancun down through Playa del Carmen down to Tulum, right? Correct, exactly. So on the side of the highway that is not on the water side, it's a lot less expensive to live. Drastically less expensive. But where you and I are talking about, we are on the corner of 
20th and 14th, roughly. And Avenida Cinco is the popular, like the Rodeo Drive mm-hmm. of Playa del Carmen. It's about three blocks toward the water, toward yep. the beach. And then you go another block and you're at the beach. Yep. So that gives people an idea. And some of my listeners have seen this building. I've posted it in my Instagram stories. So that kind of gives them a feel. But yeah, roughly $1,200 a month, and you're living in a pretty luxurious building. And if you lived here with a roommate, yeah, that brings costs down drastically. Definitely. So now, I want to speak on that for a hot second, though, because right now with the time that we're in, with the time of this recording, rents here have dropped dramatically. So a little bit of history on Playa. You know, Playa became a big spot like back in 2013, 2015. And back then, the, more people started coming, so rents really started increasing. So when we got here like last year or what have you, rents were kind of at a peak because it was a seller's market. So a lot of vacationers were coming here. But now I'm seeing rents have dropped dramatically. And I predict because the town has been affected so much, rents are going to stay really, really low. So if I were to come down here, let's say, you know, next month, even probably in the next year to pay $1,200 for something, I could be oceanfront. Whereas, you know, six months ago, it would have been three G's a month. And you are planning to be oceanfront, right? Yes, I am. When I was in LA, I always wanted to live in Malibu. But in order to do that, it would have been like 25 grand a month. And, you know, it's like, I can't afford that, whatever. But I I wanted that as my vision. It was my dream to manifest. So when I moved to the Dominican Republic, we specifically um, chose an oceanfront home. Because I discovered that with geo-arbitrage, you can have these ridiculous architectural digest places that would cost 25 grand a month, 50 grand a month in the States, I could have it for 1500 all day long. And my vision for myself was to wake up in the morning, get out of bed, walk to my blinds, open them up. And there's the beautiful Caribbean sea. And I was able to manifest that and create that multiple times over because I can get these oceanfront homes for 1500, 1800, maybe two G's depending on where you are. So, so where are you going from here? I am moving about 20 minutes down the road to a town called Porta Aventuras. It's a private gated community. It's um, a lot of older people that are there, but I don't like parties like that. So if I still partied, I would stay here in Playa, but it's gated. It has a marina. It has just the lifestyle that I really want to have in its oceanfront. All this traveling that you've done as a single woman, have you ever felt your safety was in jeopardy? Good question. I haven't, like, as in, I have not had an incident happen, but it's because... I have to do so much thinking to be prepared for things. And so that means that for me, I I don't go party late night by myself. I don't drink a lot. I don't, I'm always cognizant of what's around me. Um, My safety, I've never had an issue, but it's always top of mind for me. So I make a lot of common sense decisions around that. So when I move abroad, I live in gated communities that are heavily armed. Like when I was in the DR, I lived in a gorgeous uh, luxury condo. And it was guarded and the guards literally have sawed off shotguns and they walk around and you just see that. It's like, okay, I'm good. I'm cool. Where else was I? Both cities in the DR. And then when I was in Thailand, kind of the same thing. And then here, you know, it's gated. We have, they're not, they don't carry guns, but you know, they have security, like whatever. Um, So that's how I manage that for me. Like I would never make a decision to quote unquote live local because I don't know that that would be the wisest, safest decision for me. I started traveling in 2015. And if there's one thing that I would do differently, I spent 
very little time in each country. I, I sort of saw it as a vanity metric to to try to visit as many countries as possible so I could say I've been to 54 countries or whatever. I mean, not to say that there's not a lot of benefit because I truly did want to see that many countries the same way I do want to read a lot of books. But you understand what I mean when it becomes a, a metric that is just not all that important. It's better to immerse yourself in different countries and cultures. I'm curious if you agree with me, if you feel the same way, and aside from your experience in Australia, is there anything that you would do differently if you had to do it over again? Great question. So just like you, I did that vanity metric too. I want all these countries because, you know, it's bragging rights. It's really cool to say you've been to 54 or 34 or 64. I mean, who's done that, right? So I was chasing that vanity piece too. And I think I love the chasing around because what I was doing for myself is literally I was trying on countries. I knew from the time I was a little kid that I wasn't really meant to have a regular life living in the States and, and all that stuff. I was like, that's just not me. But I didn't know geographically where in the world I would energetically feel at peace, where I'd feel at home, where I'd be safe, where I'd be able to thrive. And so I literally spent the past 10 years trying on countries. So every country I go to, every city I go to is with the idea of, could I live here? Could I be here? Can I date here? Is my man here? Are the dudes fine? You know, what does that look like? How strong is the internet? And all those things. I always work on how I feel about something intuitively. So I probably would have done a lot more research. Like I would have researched that, oh, Australia is in the Southern Hemisphere. You need winter clothes, like dumb stuff like that. So I would have been a bit more, I guess I could say methodical about it. Also too, if I could do it again, know what I know now, I would have had my incomes already in place. I would have had my six-figure corporate income well replaced before then. I would have done invest. I would have done it the way you've done it, to be honest. I mean, like literally, um, I would have had investments in place. I would have done things way differently as far as that's concerned, because what it does is it would have allowed me a greater platform or foundation of peace in which to then jump off and do other things from versus me. I've navigated this world by myself for 10 years. Everything that I've done, every decision has been me. I have funded everything. I have done every fuck up possible. And I have come out of it like a freaking phoenix, like a champ (laughs) and done it again, up and down, up and down. And while I don't regret it because I have all the lessons from it and it's what makes me a great coach because I've done all the fuck ups that my clients don't now get to avoid, but I could have rested a little bit better, I think. What is your biggest source of income now? I do high-level coaching and also to my online courses. And, well, also too, um, I just started publishing books on Amazon probably about a year and a half ago. So my royalty income just grows exponentially every month too. Publishing your own books that you've written or? (laughs) Yes. So a couple of years ago, I discovered, I've always had this desire to like write books and, and be this accomplished writer, right? But then I discovered the fact that, well, you don't make a lot of money from books. People don't really know that, but a book is really a a high-priced business card, essentially. So you get the funnels behind it and all that stuff. So you don't make money from being an author unless you're a Stephen King, blah, blah, blah. So, But I still had this desire. So I was invited to be part of two compilation books that I was in in 2016, and it went to bestseller status. And that was cool, but it didn't bring any money. But I like the fact of like, I'm a number one bestseller on Amazon. That's really cool. So I was introduced to a concept in the fall of 2017 called low content books. And that is basically writing journals, blank books with like no writing in them, 
uh, comic books that you can draw in, coloring books, activity books, things of that nature. So they're under the context of low content books. Well, Amazon has a self-publishing feature called, it used to be called Create Space. And they would allow people like you, people like me, to basically put lines on a paper, save it as a PDF, do a cover for it, and put it up, and you're a published author through Create Space. It's now called Kindle KDP. And so with low-content books, you can crank these suckers out. I can do, I can sit here and watch Netflix for like two hours and crank out like 20 books, publish them. And then have them up. So in the year, what, year and some change I've been doing this, I have well over 1,100 books up on Amazon that sell. And um, yeah, so that's how that works. But I also have morphed into um, what's also called Kindle short reads. Well, those are Kindle books that are anywhere from 6,000 to 40,000 words 20-page books that you can sell as well on the Kindle platform, on the electronic platform. But my low-content books are actual physical paperback books that people actually buy that I've got up selling on Amazon. What's the biggest benefit to doing that? Dude, passive income through royalties. It's insane. Completely insane. And do you feel like this is an untapped market? Like people don't know about it, and so that's why you're getting big royalties from it? People are starting to find out about it quite a bit. So when I started it a year and a half ago, I saw a lot of folks coming into it. That's why I started teaching it because I'm like, y'all need to get on this now. Like, this is the thing to do. So my students are like, yeah, I'm kicking it. People are finding out about it. But basically what that means is it can never be saturated. Never. Because Amazon is the biggest platform in the world. And there are literally millions of niches that you can make these books in that really sell. There are millions of cover designs that you can do. So it's something that will never be saturated. However, the techniques and strategies that you do, I'm finding that, and I'm teaching my students this too, that we need to make our books a little bit more complex. So instead of no content, which are the blank line journals that we all have, or the the blank books, we have now really switched to what we call low content books. So those are coloring books, adult coloring books, kid coloring books, activity books, guided journals, prayer journals, those kind of things, because they take more work. And so people that have kind of flooded into this, now that they're seeing how much money that a lot of us are making, they get really lazy and they don't want to do the work. And so they'll all go by the wayside. But those of us that have the, the more complex ones up will continue to sell. And the great thing about it is these books sell into perpetuity. As long as there's Amazon, you have evergreen niches that people are going to want to buy over and over and over again. So it's one of my... It's my second favorite business model. Yeah. What's your favorite? E-commerce drop shipping through wholesale and print on demand. Can you quickly summarize drop shipping because I don't understand it? I sure will. So drop shipping is, let's say that I decide that I want to have a Sheila K t-shirt line as an example. So I want to create my own shirts. Well, the typical way to do that would be to create a design and then you find um, you order them online, you have them sent to your house, and then you ship them out to your customer. People come in, they order them, and you ship them out to your customer. So you have inventory. With drop shipping, it allows you to have a t-shirt business or any kind of physical product business, and another manufacturer actually creates them and they ship them out to your customers on your behalf. Let me give you a real example. So let's say I want to do a t-shirt. So I have this uh, unicorn t-shirt line. So unicorn t-shirts, I create a Shopify store or Amazon, what have you. People click on the link. They buy my T-shirt for $25. Well, I have a manufacturer that will sell me the T-shirt for $10. So 
the person buys a t-shirt from me on my site, I get $25 credited to my Visa account and my, my bank account. I then electronically go to the person that I contracted with. I buy the shirt at $10. They then print it for me and they send it to my customer. And the customer doesn't know where it comes from. They don't know that I only paid $10 for it. So that $15 that I get that spread is my profit. So it's drop shipped, but it's also printed on demand too. So they're drop shipping it. So, and they're shipping it to the customer on my behalf. So it allows me to have a nomadic lifestyle, not have a home, not have a garage, send things out myself. And I can still have this e-commerce business without having to have inventory and things of that nature. How many hours of your day do you spend working on drop shipping, you think? Oh, not many at all. Like two, maybe. And the most of that, the bulk of it is because I love sourcing out new and unique products. And I'm kind of a rain man when it comes to that. So my time is spent really creating, okay, what can I find that's unique that I can offer that people really aren't creating as well? So I'm curious about your coaching because I also coach people to achieve this sort of lifestyle that we're living now. Mm -hmm. In the process, do you find yourself also being a life coach? Oh, of course. Because people will come to me and say, oh, Sheila, I want to create a business, blah, 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 blah. And my first question is, well, why haven't you done it? Mm -hmm. And then you get into this whole mindset thing. Because with anything, with what you do, what I do, what we all do, the key to being successful in any of this is you got to get your mind right. And so I, I'm really a mindset coach who's disguised as a business strategist because <laughs> there's so much mental stuff. And for myself as well. I mean, for me, I've invested, my God, like six figures at least on self-development mindset stuff. And it's a constant thing. Like every year I'm, I'm doing things to really fix that. And so um, once I get my customer or my clients to where their subconscious mind is congruent with what they want on the outside, then we're off to the races. But if, if I don't get them there, it, it's, it's for nothing. They won't be successful. Okay. Personal finance. What's the most expensive country you've spent more than 30 days in? Australia by far. So when we went to Australia and New Zealand, we spent three weeks going from CAN, what they call CAN, right? It's C-A-I-R-N-S. That's where you go to the, oh, what is it? Great Barrier Reef. Thank you. The Great Barrier Reef. And then we drove down through Byron Bay, Brisbane. We went to the Blue Mountains. So we kind of went around Sydney, came back to Sydney that three weeks combined with flying to New Zealand for four weeks, I'm sorry, for two weeks, so this was five weeks total, cost us about $11,000. Yeah. It is not cheap. That's five weeks. And Australia, surprisingly, I felt like was about 15 years behind the United States. You're staying in hotels that would have been cool like in the early 80s. Yep. Their Wi-Fi is very slow. It's not very modern. But what I thought was interesting is that you could stay in what looked like a cheap motel in a small town on the way to Arizona from Colorado, but it's $115 a night, mm -hmm. but it's just a motel. And so I, I was very surprised by that. But Byron Bay, if I had to choose one place to live in the world, it might be Byron Bay. I loved Byron Bay. That's a spot I didn't get to go to, unfortunately. But when I go back to Australia, I'm, I'm definitely going. And Brisbane. I would live in Brisbane in a heartbeat. I loved Brisbane. I love the Gold Coast. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I have, to, I have to be here. It's fantastic. It's just so far and it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It, it's cray, cray, cray. It's about a four-hour flight, I believe, from Australia to Bali. 
And of course, it would depend on where you left in Australia. But there are a lot of Australians in Bali. Mm-hmm. And that's why. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Australia light. <laughs> really, it is. I know. It's pretty hardcore. Which is jacking up the cost of Bali, right? I mean, as these things here and Bali become more popular, I'm sure Chiang Mai is going to be the next to fall to people who are just jacking the price up. You know, I tell people all the time that that Americans are raising the prices of everywhere they go because they're so generous. We have such a tipping culture that we go to a place like Phuket, Thailand, and we stay in a resort and our room service is brought to us. I remember one time getting breakfast, full breakfast for $4.32. And the girl was so sweet who brought it and the way that they so sincerely thank you when they put their hands together and just kind of bow, you're like, I, I want to tip you another $4. You want to give them a 100% tip. And what that does is, unfortunately, jacks up the cost for everybody. The blog that you and I both follow called Two Expats in Mexico, it's the most popular blog in Mexico. What he advocates for is giving somewhere around a 35% tip in Mexico. The reason I think that's not a good idea, and I got into an argument with him online, is because he was able to retire here because of the low cost. If you go around giving 35% tips to everyone because you're imposing your tipping culture on them, you're going to jack the price up for everyone. And you have to consider that those who come from Europe don't have a tipping culture. So you're going to get way better service than other people. Well, it's just, it's a tricky situation. And I just don't know that we should be imposing our tipping culture on everyone. If you want the price of everything in the world to be the same price as America, then by all means, but just food for thought. I agree with you on that. That's I've seen so many places that I've been to, like I used to go to Paris a lot back in the day. And when I first started, there was no tipping in, Fran- in Paris or in France. But I noticed when I went back like five years later, the waiters were expecting a tip mm-hmm. because so many of us were going over. Then same thing here. When I first started coming here years ago, you didn't tip in Mexico. Like it just wasn't a thing. But now like they are propina, propina, like propina means tip in, in Spanish. And like they expect 15 to 20%. And like, I get it. Like, and the thing is, it's so cheap for us that there's almost a guilt. Like, oh my God, like how can I not tip or how can I only do 10% when this is only costing me $4, but I would have paid 40 for this at home, you know? So there's a guilt thing, but I, I agree with your point in that it, it makes it harder for others to come and have the benefit of the cheap place and the cheap living while still supporting the, the local economy. So it's, it's a, it's a mental dance. It's, it's a lot. So do you invest in the stock market at all? I used to, but I got out of it. I actually bought Google stock when Google first (laughs) did their first uh, IPO. So, but no, I don't now. I, uh, it got a little too, I don't know what, or maybe I got distracted. So I'm kind of sitting on the sidelines right now. I have an economics major and I'm series six and series seven registered from like way back when. So I, I know markets, I know financial things of that nature too, but I just, I haven't gotten into it because you really have to know what the hell it is you're doing. And I, I really want to invest in some great coaching with someone before I get back into it. Cause everything I did before I did on my own did okay, but I'm like, okay, was that a fluke? I'm not trying to really mess around with that anymore. You and I were talking about investing in Zoom yesterday. I was telling you that if we just invested in the products that we use, we would have done really, really well. Yeah, man. That, and that's why I got Google. When Google first came out, I was like, okay, well, this has got to be a big thing. And I held on to it for like five years and I sold. Another one we talked about was Spotify. Even after 
Joe Rogan signed the hundred and well, you said it was 120 million, 110, 120, something like that. Yeah. After Once you he get over 100 that, million, who cares? Right. <laughs> after he signed that deal, the stock is up another 33 percent. So a lot of times we think we're too late to the game. And it could be just the beginning. I've said before that if we look back from the year 2100, people may say, wow, you could have invested in all these technology companies from 2001 to 2050 and just killed it. It was just the start of the economic boom. But the other side of that argument is, is if you had to pick the top of a market, it would probably be when all of your friends start to buy $40 courses on how to invest in the stock market, or you start hearing your taxi driver giving you tips, or your buddy's uh, cousin who is 19 years old just quit his job so that he could trade online. <laughs> there's, there's all these indicators of, hey, we might be at the top. And the reason they're saying that is because I should say in 99, when the dot-com boom was at its climax, everybody was trying to get into trading stocks because you didn't want to miss out. Stocks were going up every single day. People were getting a lot of paper wealth. So that's interesting. You want to do some fun questions? Yes. All right, let's do it. Apple or Android? Apple. Have you tried AirPods yet? No. mm -mm. It's one of those things where once you go to it, you'll never go back. They are so good, and they keep getting better. So I just, as a birthday gift, got the noise-canceling AirPods Pro. Nice. I love them. And for some reason, it feels like you're learning more because of the way it enters your head. I don't know what it is, but if I'm listening to a podcast, it's like it's being inserted into my brain in a way that if you were listening to a Sony Walkman, it wouldn't be the same. Wow. Yeah, I can't explain it. I don't know if that's an aspect of the technology, but I love them. Better comic, Richard Pryor or Dave Chappelle? Oh, Richard Pryor. Not even close? Not, no. <laughs> because everyone that came after Pryor is a Pryor imitation. So Richard Pryor for sure, all day long. Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle? Dave Chappelle. Mm. Have you seen his latest 846? No, I won't watch it right now. There, there's so much that's coming in that we've made a decision to really maintain with a ferocity our self-care and so I have to really manage because I've heard that it's pretty serious or whatever. And it's like, cool, but I really need to manage what comes in. And uh, right ditto. Now. I haven't seen it either for the yeah. same reason. Yeah. Self-care. I mean, like we've, we've made a decision to not be there and, and because of what, what I knew was coming or whatever. And so to sit here and, and be immersed in all of it, it will derail you. So, yeah, self-care. Well, let's keep going down that yeah. line of thinking and deviate just for a minute from fun questions. How, how bad do you think it gets from here in America leading up to the election? Let's say, do you think it gets worse? Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting time. Again, I'm not a genie in a bottle, but the bottle has been uncorked and you cannot put the cork back in the bottle. And this is a bottle that has been, you know, several hundred years in the making and it, it's out. I mean, the genie is out and we can't go back because people are aware. Too many people beyond just black people saying, yo, this is happening. Redlining is happening. We can't get loans because this job, microaggressions in corporate America, can't wear my hair a certain way. We're being murdered. All these different things. People were able to say, oh, yeah, it's just your imagination. But now we can't. And this is what I knew would happen. I knew that humanity would eventually step in when things got as bad as they've gotten. Because as human beings, we are put on this earth in, in God's emanation 
or whomever, whatever you believe. To to love inherently, we love each other. We accept each other. We're fucking human beings, right? And so that doesn't go away on a base level. And so what's been tapped into is is the human to human connection, the human to human. Like we we can't do this. And so I, it's going to get worse. It's my God. Yes, it's going to get worse because the factions that put those things into play, redlining and even slavery itself is all based on money. It's all based on money. And people are making a lot of fucking money behind it from privatized prisons, all of that. So now we're talking about generations of livelihood that is affected. And you best believe those institutions are going to fight against the institution that they've actually built. They're not going to let go. They're like, oh, yeah, okay. We're being assholes. It's all right. We'll kumbaya and everything is cool. No, it's, it's we have a very long, arduous road for not just black rights, but for all all kinds of rights before things level out. So, yeah, no, it's we got a long way to go. And the election coming into play. Oh, my goodness gracious. That's going to be a. Wow, it's going to be an interesting time <laughs> to put it mildly. Who do you think Joe Biden will choose as his VP? You know, I, I know he's looking at a lot of women candidates or whatever. I personally don't think that's the answer. My roommate and I were talking about this, and she said something that I really believe is absolute sheer brilliance. And I think if he does it, he'll have an excellent chance of winning. And that is choosing Mitt Romney as his running mate. Because Mitt died in the wool Republican, but he's basically, he has hit his human side and is like, yo, We've gone so fucking far with this. I can't even be a part of this party anymore. Like, this is not, this is not cool. And so his cronies have ostracized him. But Mitt Romney is a brilliant man. He's a successful businessman. He has great ideologies. I, I think he's done some good things, some other things too. But I think if we split the ticket, because also too what's happening is a lot of Republicans are now saying, I can't support this party because of the foolishness that's going on. So the Republican Party is losing a lot of people. I was just reading a Reddit thread that was published on Sunday. And a guy asked, those of us that are dying with Republicans that have left, why have you left? And there were over 2,000 responses from Republicans. And all these were all white males that gave various instances of why they've left. So the party is losing people just because you can't, you just, it's like, this is crazy. So where are those people going to go? And we all know that America is not ready for a woman VP or president because if the president dies, there's a woman president. That's not going to happen. That's not cool with a lot of people, male, female, whatever. And so I believe it should be a man. And I also believe that if, if anybody out there, I think Mitt Romney. That is the smartest take that I have heard. I've asked that question probably two dozen times and at least three now on this program. And I have never heard that response. And I think it's genius. <laughs> I, I really do. Mm-hmm. I had not considered it. And also, too, I mean, Biden, God bless his little old ass heart. That man will he survive four years. Oh, who knows? So whomever he picks is more than likely going to be the president just because of that particular reason. And so you want someone that's not another 90-year-old person. You want someone that has a proven track record. These people that he's looking at, these women, and again, nothing against women, obviously, but, you know, what have they really done? And also, too, you know, I, I am about money. Mitt Romney is, is a 
very wealthy person and has been for a long time. And so I need someone with that sense and sensibility as well for for economic reasons, too. Well, one of the mistakes that Joe Biden made early on was saying that he was going to choose a woman. He would have been wise to say that he was going to choose the best available candidate and then choose a woman. Do you have a favorite book? Well, I have several. Um, The books I read every year, I read them over and over again. I have for like 10 years. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It's kind of an obvious one, but people kind of miss that. Um, Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Um, The Millionaire Fast Lane by, what is it, M.L. DeMarco is a great book too. And The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Let's talk about the second one because I'm not familiar. Psycho-Cybernetics. So that is a doc- by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. And basically it's about v- using visualization to train your brain to get whatever it is you want. Because our subconscious minds, it doesn't determine whether or not something is real or imagined. And so we can have a vision in our minds and through our imagination, we can actually picture that like a movie in our mind. And if you do it enough times, your subconscious mind says, oh, okay, Sheila wants to go to Australia. Got it. I have to make this happen now. And so the next thing you know, your brain is creating these steps for you to take to get to whatever it is your goal is. Through, through psycho-cybernetics, you, you're training your mind through imagination to get what you want. So a lot of athletes use it. So a lot of golfers use it as an example. So somebody will say, you know, I practice this golf stroke in my mind 3,000 times. And so when they do it, their brain has already seen it. It's already done and so automatically happens. So top athletes all use psycho-cybernetics, uh, some version of it, through conditioning their brains. And so that's it's basically like creating mind movies in your brain through your imagination and imprinting it. Because again, the key point is your subconscious mind doesn't know if it's real or imagined. Is it similar to The Secret? No, The Secret is really about manifesting. Not really. It, it's, the, it's the scientific version of The Secret, if I guess I could explain it that way. It's an excellent, excellent book. And every time I read it, that one and Think or Grow Rich, it's like reading a whole new book because I have so much, so many different levels of knowledge. I've read Think and Grow Rich like 15 times now. It's tattered and all the stuff. And literally, I'll read the first chapter and it's like, oh my God, I never knew this because my brain is stretched so much and it's all new information that I'm processing differently even though I've read it over and over again. Yeah, because you're a different person when you read the book a different time, Yep. right? Yep. I'm a huge fan. You and I talked about yesterday how it would be better if people read a dozen books twice rather than shooting for the vanity metric of reading 100 books yep. or reading a book three or four times. Or There's only so much time in this life to read books. And I don't read as many books as I used to because of Twitter and because of the articles that I like to read. Somebody like Morgan Housel writes something, I have to consume it right away. And it keeps me from reading five pages of a book. Mm-hmm. I think the natural questions from what you just talked about would be, are you a meditator and do you have an inner monologue? Very much so. I started meditating back in 2012 because I study successful people. Anyone that I see that has something that I want or a goal I always, I reverse engineer everything. And so I always say, okay, they're human just like I am. They don't have superpowers. So we're, we started at an even starting field. So 
what decisions did they make that got them to where they are? And, and so, I, and I look for common threads. And so one of the common threads that I saw in multimillionaires, someone said years ago that they all get up at like 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Well, at that time I was working a job and I was like, why the fuck would you do that? Oh my gosh. But then I thought about it and they said it's because that quiet time allows them, those two or three hours that they have allows them to get a lot of work done, to work on themselves and it gets them primed and prompt to do all the things they have to do. So I started getting up and I read the book, The Miracle Morning. Bottom minimum, I get up early, eliminate, hydrate, meditate, and then journal. And then I start my day. And I also keep my phone away from me because most people will get up and they'll pick up their phone and they'll get into email and you allow in all this other energy that derails you. And so I'm fiercely protective of my mornings. So I just, I use that time for myself and I'm fiercely protective of it. And I find that it's worked miracles in my own personal life as far as like my my mental state, I think my money state, my well-being state, I'm centered. My anxiety, it controls my anxiety as well. Because a lot of people don't talk about this, but being an entrepreneur, you know, there's so much mental stuff that comes up, depression, anxiety, and all those, those fun things too. And so having to manage those, I think it helps me as well. I do a lot of that stuff too. As soon as I wake up, I naturally go to the restroom and then start the coffee pot, meditate, hydrate to make sure that I drink at least a glass of water. I tried doing the morning pages for a while and I'm just bad about working it into my routine, but I am a fan of it, especially if you're a creative type. There's a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Is that where you got the That's where I from? got that from. Okay. Yes. Yes. And so do you have an inner monologue? I do. I let my imagination go and I'm always thinking of business strategies, business plans, but I also have to have a lot of discipline. And so my inner monologue and things around that are really around keeping my own inner discipline and also keeping my confidence up as well. Because you and I talked about the imposter syndrome yesterday. You know, Sheila, just because all this stuff came, quote unquote, easily, as I do in my air quotes, it really does take skill. And it really does take a lot to do what I've done and what I've accomplished and then it's not easy and, and to be easy on myself, because I'm also hard on myself, too, because I have this strong desire to be successful and I've got perfectionist syndrome, too. And so I'm, I'm constantly having to be easy on myself. I tell people all the time, if someone said to me the things that I say to myself, I would punch them in the fucking throat because I'm hard on myself that way. And I've had to learn to be easier and to give myself grace, too. So. Yeah. I like that. I wrote 40 pieces of life advice to my 20-year-old self for my birthday. And part of the advice was to love yourself because your former self worked hard to get where you are today. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? Oh, boy. I would give my mom whatever she needs. Like I'd probably give her like 250 grand just to be like, here, do what you need to do. I would save half a million just to like have as a cushion or whatever. And then I would give myself half a million, 250,000 to spend. I give her 250K. So of my 250K, I would have some fun. So I would probably throw a huge party and invite a lot of my friends to come down and just kick it for a little bit. I would hire a decent sized team as well. I would really outsource like my whole business and make sure that was happening I used to be psychotically materialistic. 
Like I used to get purses, like a purse that was like $7,000. Who the fuck does that? Like, that's just dumb. And I had lots of those things. And those things were actually important because I was filling a hole that I guess I needed to have filled or whatever. But I'm not that person. So like acquiring things like, I'm, oh, I'd buy a car. Like, no, I don't care about a car. I don't care about that stuff. So there's nothing that I would acquire. And as far as traveling, I've been everywhere that I want to go. So I've accomplished all those things. So I would just like do a lot for other people, I think at this point, as cliche as that sounds, I would actually create something that helps young black girls who are 13, 11 to like 13 or 15, some sort of program that exposes them to possibilities. That's beautiful. Have you been to Sub-Saharan Africa? No, I've been to, where have I been? I've been to Morocco. I've been to a country called Equatorial Guinea. And that's it. So I've only done two countries in Africa. I'm going to name a few people. And I want you to tell me if you think they're overrated or underrated. Charles Barkley. Underrated. Al Sharpton. Overrated. Steve Harvey. (laughs) Overrated. Lyndon Baines Johnson. Underrated. John F. Kennedy. Underrated. Kamala Harris. Mm. (laughs) Um, Overrated. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Underrated. Gavin Newsom. Underrated. Bill Clinton. Overrated. Chelsea Clinton. Overrated. Magic Johnson. Underrated. Kobe Bryant. Underrated. James Worthy. Underrated. Todd Gurley. I don't know who that is. He's the running back for the LA Rams. I thought you might not know. I'm giving you way more names than I have written down here (laughs) because you're so good with it and so quick. Normally, people feel like they need to explain their answer and not you. And so I'm like, oh, okay, well, let me just give you some more names because this is fascinating. (laughs) And I had already asked you about Richard Pryor or Mm -hmm. Dave Chappelle. So Mm -hmm. I imagine you would say Richard Pryor is underrated. Dave Chappelle is probably also underrated. Chris Rock, same. Correct. What about the Wayans brothers? And underrated, but mm-hmm. for reasons that you probably wouldn't imagine, but underrated for sure. You have a favorite Wayne's brother? Keenan, because he paved the way. Mm-hmm. He paved the way for all of them. I respect that so much. Are you a fan of John Stewart? Yes, very much so. What about Stephen Colbert? Yes. Yeah, I'm a fan. If you had to name someone who thinks as fast as Stephen Colbert... Can you think of anyone? The guy who replaced John Stewart. What's his name? Um, Trevor Trevor Noah. Ah, okay. Yeah, Trevor Noah for sure. Interesting. Yeah. Trevor Noah, overrated or underrated? Under. Before we wrap this up, I want to give you an opportunity to ask any questions you may have of me. Do you have any questions that come to mind that you're dying to ask? So let me ask you. So you did everything the way that, again, if I could go back knowing what I know now to have this life, I I would very much emulate what you do. But is there something that you've done that knowing what you know now that you would have done, a decision you would have made to have made it easier for you or whatever, something that you would have done differently? I bought a three-story home in 2011 that I would not have bought. We talked about how I would have spent more time in different places, Mm -hmm. really 
fully getting to know the people in the culture, whereas I just hurried on to the next place. Is that what you're sort of looking for? Yeah. Or like me, like when I said, you know, like, dude, I totally would have planned and had made all the money before and all those different kind of things. So like from a, from a financial standpoint, I know you're the fire guy or whatnot. Do you feel like the steps that you took, if you could go back and do it again, would you have done anything differently? Or are you like, no, I, I was solid and I'm still solid knowing what I know now? I definitely would have done things differently because you don't know this, but the year from April 2015 to mid-2016 was only supposed to be a year off from work, and I was going to go back. And you wouldn't believe how many employers didn't even want to speak with me, because once you get a taste of freedom, you, you basically become unemployable in a lot of people's eyes. And it's incredible. People, the, the disrespect was astounding. I, I was put in jail one night because I got pulled over for a $10 break tag. They lost the paperwork. I spent 22 hours in jail. And I tried to have a conversation with the jailer, the guy who was guarding where I was placed with several other people. And they're so accustomed to dealing with riffraff that he wouldn't even have a conversation with me. The only other time I've experienced that is when I came back from traveling, if I tried to talk to someone that didn't know me. And I think there, there are a lot of reasons for that. The culture we live in, it takes people longer to grow up nowadays. Uh, so they make assumptions about you. And I thought, you know, I'm going to turn this energy positive and help people. I'm going to transmute these, this energy that they've provided by this negativity, and I'm just going to be a light and ask God to shine through me and help other people. So that's sort of how it started. Now, I did have several job offers, but even those were, they weren't offering the sort of money because they thought I was just this hippie loser, I guess, you know, this counterculture dropout. It wasn't about that. And had they hired me, I mean, I like to think that they would, they made a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. Because had they hired me, I'm, there's nobody that's going to work harder than me. An HR manager is going to look to see that you have this, 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 and this. Well, they see like volunteer experience on my resume. Like that doesn't mean anything to them. You know, how much money did you make last year? The people who did know me, I would say three out of four offered me a job. But even then, they, I guess, figured that I was desperate for money and so offered me very little money. And I discovered after a year of being off from work, I discovered the fire community and was like, whoa, I'm one of those people. Mm -hmm. So although I had goals when I was 22, 23 to be financially independent, I still wanted to be CEO someday. Yeah. So had I known that I was never going to work again, mm -hmm. I probably would have further reduced my expenses in those, let's say, year nine to 12 while I was working. Gotcha. Because I was living on about $2,000 a month in my 20s. I raised that to about 2200 and then 2700 And then by the time I retired, I was living on about... $3,500 a month, but I was traveling so much for work. Some months I would spend only $1,800. Mm -hmm. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. I would have saved a little more. And as we've talked about, spent more time in, in different countries. Gotcha. Yeah. Good for you for realizing that you and I both are, we're genetically unemployable. Like 
And, you know, because I had the same thing. I was going to get a job back in 2015. I was in Dallas. And I was like, well, I may as well get a job. And I kept getting rejected for these jobs that I knew that I should have gotten, right? Because I'm dope at what I do as a recruiter. But then I finally looked at that and I realized that my my subconscious mind was saying, you don't want to work. That's not that's not what you do. And finally I had to say, yeah, no, I don't. I don't. That's not me. And I don't have to. So I am unemployable and I'm happy. And you are CEO of this amazing life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they mean people have these CEO titles. They make all this money, but are they free? No. Nope. Nope. You and I have more time wealth than a billionaire. And that's the most important thing to me. I would not want to be Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Anything else? No, this has been fun. This has been so much fun. Likewise. It went by fast, right? Yeah, it did. I told you it would. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you for coming on, Sheila. This was incredibly fun. Uh, how can people find you online, either connect with you or uh, talk to you about coaching? or whatever? You can find my website, which is SheilaKBrown.com, S-H-E-I-L-A, middle initial K, last name Brown.com. Everything about me is on there and how to find me and my adventures and all that stuff too. And if you find me on Facebook, well, I don't really post that much anymore. It's funny. I used to post all of my adventures on Facebook, but now I don't really post a lot because I'm just living my life and just kind of chill. But my website is the best way. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you for being here. Friends, I'm always humbled by your listenership and never take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with us. So thank you. If you enjoyed this episode with Sheila, please copy the link and share it with a friend. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 